Hello, and welcome to NER Out Loud. I'm Carolyn Keebler, editor of New England Review, and today I'll be presenting a reading by Celeste Levy of Offered as Suddenly a Forest, a poem by Zach Lingy. This will be followed by a conversation about the poem between reader and writer, where they'll talk about the nature of truth-telling in poetry, about craft and experience, about love and fear, and how all of that comes together in this singular work. Reader Celeste Levy studies philosophy and poetry at Middlebury College and has published their writing in the Palo Alto Weekly and Blackbird. They live in Vermont and California, where they love spending time painting and in the outdoors. Zach Lingy, whose poems were published in NER in 2020, has also published work in such journals and anthologies as Agni, Best New Poets, Pleiades, Poetry, and Ziziva. Zach lives in Tallahassee, where they teach creative writing and serve as editor-in-chief of the Southeast Review. For the past five years or so, the New England Review has brought pieces from the magazine alive on stage, read by Middlebury students in front of an audience. This live NER Out Loud program is traditionally followed by a reception and some more readings by student writers. Since live theater audiences were not part of our world last November, when the program was scheduled, we decided instead to have the students record the work live on stage in the Mahaney Concert Hall to an audience of three. Program director Dana Yetten, audio engineer Mark Christensen, and me. And then to help make up for that lack of audience interaction and the absence of hot chocolate and some more readings afterwards, we brought reader and author together virtually to share their experience of reading and being read. And now we bring all of that to you, our listeners. We'll start with Celeste Levy's reading of the poem by Zach Lingy. Offered as suddenly a forest. Imagine a desert and call it yearning. For years, nothing but sand in your teeth. The viper skulls you mistook for cherries, their crunch. Dry heave sobs. Beating your chest, you could have opened the cage of your ribs like a prayer book. Remember how you praised every misplaced grace of water, how the collected drops shot through you with diseases. Every fresh-found fruit, a hallucination. Each scavenged seed a swallowed nail, until one day you look up from your feet. A hawk condescends from the sky, its cry saws the air, and there, suddenly against your face, an entire forest. You stand stupidly at its feet. This monolith so inevitable, you should have seen it cleaved between the sand and the sky like a sheet, coming with its dark, its greens, so deep they're purple as the veins of your leg, so purple you could unthread them each and gum the grapes off. The trees offer you everything. At home, your lover bends against so much scrutiny. He wanders into becoming anything other than a forest. And you made it this far. But linger at the edge, as if you could enter. 
That was Celeste Levy reading a poem by Zach Lindsay, which appeared in the New England Review in 2020, along with the poem Branches. These poems can be found at anyreview.com in the 40.1 issue. I had a chance to catch up with Celeste and Zach over Zoom. I began by asking Celeste to tell us a little about their experience with the text and what it was like to record a poem that they felt such a personal attachment to and yet was not their own. And what was the rehearsal like? The whole process of rehearsing the recording, the hardest part was striking a balance between giving the poem the, the emotion and energy that it deserved without putting too much of myself into it. So I didn't want to use too much inflection um, in a way that would erase the meaning or shift it or mold it with my hands. I wanted it to be just a representation of what you wrote. It was really wonderful to perform it on that big stage. It's a beautiful hall. I don't know if you've ever seen Middlebury Zach, but this concert hall is gorgeous and there's big windows and really fun, like triangular shapes everywhere. And because it was so empty, I felt like the words had a lot of space to move and settle. So having just a couple people in the room really allowed the poem to take up the space that it deserved and that it commands as a piece. So grateful to hear that. And I want to say off the bat that it's um, <laughs> quite a surprise for people to read my work. You know, the relationship that I have with these words is so private. And I don't think about ever the fact of it existing in the world. And so it's to hear that somebody would recommend the poem. First of all, I'm like, there's more more than one person reading this. <laughs> and then it, to hear that that it resonated with you is uh, just deeply meaningful. So if I get emotional during the interview, you'll just have to forgive me a little bit. So thank you for your kindness. It means a lot. I so, mu so much resonate with the idea that writing and then showing is such a different game that a lot of the times when you write, you don't think about other people reading it. And then when they do, you kind of forgot that those were what words that you made. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> I'm just curious how it feels to now be in the process of publishing with NER. Yeah, so I try to, um, I try to keep all publishing in the space in my brain that doesn't acknowledge the reality of things. <laughs> and so that you know for better or for worse for better that helps me concentrate on my relationship with the words for worse that means that I have some bad habits I finish a thing I get happy with it I get excited about it and I send it and that's not always the right approach sometimes I need to sit with these brats for a few months before I tell them that they can go play in the world and then you know at the same time it's it's extremely affirming I write so many poems and so many of them are genuinely dreadful. And it's really affirming when I have a thing that seems to be able to walk on its own two feet. And I get confirmation from people like Rick Barrett, an, you know, an early hero of mine and a huge inspiration to me from on the level of craft, especially. That's remarkable. And listening to the recording was an entirely different experience in itself on multiple levels, on a craft level and on a personal level. On the personal level, again, the experience is so private. Um, and I write from experience. I, I know that there are 
I know there's a long tradition of a certain distance between the poet and the speaker, but I just don't live in that reality at present. <laughs> and so to hear a person embody the experiences I've attempted to, to render it, um, to give voice to it on a personal level is affirming in a, a pretty um, incomparable way to just hear, yes, that's a thing that happened. And, it, and these words affirm that reality. And so whereas the publishing sphere for me is this ongoing abstraction that I try to make, keep that way, I'm so grateful for the fact that I got to hear your voice, a voice, saying these things, which just offered a level of concreteness to the experience. That's a really interesting point that you make, the, the keeping that publishing piece separate. And I, I think I really applaud that. I think that makes so much sense, particularly that whole idea between um, separating the, the author and the speaker. Similar to you, that makes no sense to me. <laughs> I have never written a poem that has not directly exposed every thought in my head. And so when you're writing things that are that personal, of course, it's going to be hard to think about putting it out into the world in such a public way. It's an incomprehensible thing. And I'm sure that your writing is more true to yourself by keeping that sphere separate. I hope so. I have a, a, a tenuous relationship with truth. And so when I say that there's kind of a short distance between the speaker and my lived experiences, that's not to say that the experiences are real. It's mm. not to say what I render into the work is fact or is honest. In the same way that I have this kind of shifting apprehension of reality, when I write a poem, I'm, I'm feeling my way into a thing. And the words are guiding me toward some version of a an experience, not a truth necessarily, but an experience. And that's one of the things that I was so... Uh, grateful to have experienced when I was writing Offer to Suddenly a Forest was that I, have the, I had this emotional, ongoing emotional experience that had not been rendered into language. And going through that process, it's like defanging the monster or putting it on a leash. When I can bring a struggle or a yearning onto the page and decide its parameters, there's meaning there imposed on experience. There's constraint imposed on chaos. How comforting. <laughs> That's wonderful. That's a wonderful way to think about it. Yeah, you're creating control. I so resonate with the idea of a tenuous grasp on truth. Um, How so? I don't particularly believe in truth, particularly in terms of the complicated narratives in all of our relationships. I often think about how, in a, you know, in a conflict, you always want to be right or to know what happened. But in a way, there isn't a true narrative of what happened because for each person that was informed differently and experienced differently, and neither one is more true than anyone else, particularly when I think about memory. And so if I'm thinking about things that happened years ago, what feels so real to me might be very different than what happened because our memories adjust themselves and edit themselves. And so everyone who's involved in any situation is separately going their ways and adjusting and editing, and it's still their reality. So I think any perception of reality is so different than anyone else's. And that makes your approach to poetry in terms of defanging that monster, deciding your own parameters, really powerful, I think, because it, you know, it puts some control on that ability for our perceptions of an experience or a sensation to just run wild. It's a game. Uh, maybe not always a healthy one, maybe a kind of Tom Stoppard who's afraid of Virginia Woolf or <laughs> <laughs> but it's a game. <laughs> 
I'd love to dive a little bit more into the specific poem itself. And I'm really interested in the process of your writing it, if it took a long time, if it was one of the poems that just flows out of you. How did this poem come into being? On a walk, I found a lake in Tallahassee at the same time as I began listening to Homer. And so I, I spent the first three hours of each day for about six weeks walking around this lake. I needed it. I needed that motion and also the classics. And so uh, I was going in circles as one does and dealing with a kind of a ongoing anxiety that I have around and have written a lot into in my manuscript concerning love. Um, I'm someone who had not been in a serious relationship since I was in high school. And here I was 29 or 30, having fallen in love, moved across the country and found myself face to face with the most intimidating experience of my life, which is um, to be seen and held and to mirror that. So I was walking around the lake and the first line of the poem, this is a... This is a little, uh, I don't know what to call it, like a, an Easter egg or, I don't know, a secret or a mistake. It's a thing. The first line of the poem I thought was really, really brilliant. And I was like, I don't know where this came from. It's like something in my subconscious has just like come up with something magical. This is so <laughs> cool. I can't wait to just run with it. And so I wrote the poem in this experience. And months later, realized that the beat and the concept and the general rhetoric for that first line comes from one of my partner's poems. So here I am having to run with this first line that I was like, this is some like magical thing that my subconscious has done. And now <laughs> it's, it's like all that plagiaristic. It's just like I have taken a line and run with it and created an entirely different poem. And so I, I started with a line as so often happens from someone else with or without realizing it. Different words, different occasion, different concept. But that language propelled me into the poem's uh, ultimate consideration which is, of course, how, among others, how do we stand at the edge of something so obvious, so obviously good, and permit ourselves to enter? And one of the advantages of walking around that lake and listening to poetry at the same time was uh, I moved into the space of objects and setting. Um, and there's this image in the poem, the monolith, you know, the whole, the title of the poem, Suddenly a Forest. When you drive through the neighborhood into uh, the area where this lake is, it's remarkable because you go from a very flat area, pretty suburban neighborhood. Everything is no higher than a house. Most things are shorter. And then suddenly, directly in front of you, the way the drive goes directly in front of you is this wall, just this flat, dark green, dark, dark, dark green wall of a forest. And it's, I mean, it's sublime and it's striking and pretty terrifying the way that this forest just seems to suck up all the light, and especially I'm driving there in the morning. So there's little light already. And then there's this again, purplish green, I mean, just drop off. And so I, I was wrestling with that image at the same time that I was wrestling with just lover's anxieties. And upon stealing a line from my partner, ended up with a poem. <laughs> Well, I love how in a poem about a relationship, the driving force ended up being something made by your partner. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, so my next question is one that I've been asking every writer I can get my hands on. How has your writing changed if you've still been writing over this past maybe nine month period of increased isolation being in one spot? Mm. There are fewer objects I have uh, less being in the world. And so in that way, I'm more responsible for study uh, rather than experience. Th that's super abstract. I guess I, I should talk about actions because uh, those are things we can wrap our minds around. In terms of actions, I don't think like, I don't think there's been a terrible difference in terms of output, uh, but certainly my experiences have changed. Uh, for instance, this week, I, I don't have the sort of internal muscle that some people do uh, that they can use to like go to bed at the same time or wake mm -hmm. up or eat three meals a day. I have this kind of rotating cycle where like if if I don't have an obligation or a person imposing a schedule upon me, my sleep schedule just kind of keeps moving. And so this week it finally got to a breaking point where I like, I, I think I fell asleep at five in the morning, woke up four hours later, I fell asleep sometime in the afternoon, woke up three hours later. And that night was like, my body would just made me panic. The brain was like, hey, we need a rhythm. This is utter chaos. You're living in the void. And so I, I literally like drove myself unwell. Yeah. Um, and so at the end of that night, I was trying to go to sleep and all of the adrenaline in my brain was like, no, we're going to write drafts. And so in like half an hour, I just spat out, I think five really, really crappy drafts of poems that I just had to make right then and then passed out. And this is after a month of not writing anything. They just kind of happen because I've had so much time on my hands and so few experiences. I've been focusing more on engaging uh, explicitly with um, inherited forms and genres. Um, and so for the first time in my writing life, I've kind of forced myself into very rigid constraints in my writing. And so I have... I mean, you name the form, I probably tried it and spent time for quarantine, uh, trying to make it work. That's been liberating because my poems are, my the first manuscript that I have um, that I'm trying to stop taking poems out of right now, <clears throat> it engages with the self from the first person point of view so frequently mm -hmm. um, that it's just exhausting. And so it's really refreshing to be in a place where I can engage in forms where I can try to remove that first person speaker as much as possible. Tell me about this manuscript. Is this a collection of poems? Yeah, so it's, I've started sending it out and it's the one that offered a Sydney Forest and Branches are both in. And it follows its queer speaker through active addiction and mental illness into recovery and into a romantic relationship. And it deals, it uses inherited forms and genres, like everything from the sonnet to the country home poem. And and I don't know if it's done because I, every time I, I think that it's done, I pull out another 15 pages and put new work in. But <laughs> I cut my hair and my manuscript last night. <laughs> this seems to happen frequently. <laughs> Little trim the split ends on both, you know? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. You sound very moderate. I wish I could be. I am definitely not moderate. I've been working <laughs> on my first collection too recently and my, my trimming comes with the fact that I love any poem I write for the next two days. And then after that, I see it and I'm like, who allowed this? Mm -hmm. Who let this happen? Mm -hmm. So the trimming comes with me looking at anything I've done previously and being like, this absolutely will not do. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Going back to the publishing conversation, I would not have a single poem published if I thought of publication as as real. Like I have to yeah. keep it completely abstract in my mind so that I can send poems out because I wouldn't be able to otherwise. Like the, the day that I discovered that the journals that are on my shelf are actual physical objects is probably the day that I stopped publishing poetry. Because <laughs> I just <laughs> I send, uh, I send the poem out and I try my damnedest not to think about it. And what's cool is that poems like Branches and Offered to Suddenly a Forest, and then it, some of the poems that I have like in, in Poetry Magazine, they're early drafts. Hmm. They worked. And so, so much of the work comes not in the writing, but in the thinking about and the living through the poem for me, that when I have something like forest or branches happen, that music is already there. The mm-hmm. images are already there. I've lived in that imaginative sphere and, and then the writing just works. And certainly I revise, but I try to work. I, I try to move through that process before I, I can acknowledge that I'm sending the poem out. Uh, and yeah. what that means, honestly, is that a, a ton of extremely gracious editors have very kindly rejected the majority of the things that I've submitted. But but then there are moments like like this one where it's just, it was right and it came out right. There are certainly some poems that come out more finished than others. And so, you know, some poems that I am always going to love, even on the first draft, just because they are right. Mm-hmm. So what I'm what I'm noticing talking to you is... I think a really beautifully pure sentiment of not writing for others. What do you think drives your your poetry? How have you always written poetry? When did you start writing? Oh no, I hated poetry. I hated it so much for a long time. And I tried so hard to understand <laughs> it and to appreciate it. And I couldn't. And I tried to write. I mean, I, I you know, I've been I've had drafts since I was probably in high school. I think puberty. I think puberty mm-hmm. is probably where poetry began. <laughs> but it just didn't work. I couldn't wrap my mind around it. I had a, you know, a degree in English from University of Texas and still had no idea what a poem was. And then I found the book that did it for me. And I emailed the poet and said, so I'm going to curse. I'm sorry, but the subject line of, of my email is what the fuck is a poem? And I said, like, I have read, <laughs> I have read the things, I, but I do not understand. I don't get it. How does it work? And this poet very, very generously responded and told me everything that was wrong with my writing and continued to do that for about half a year via email. And, uh, and the thing that he continued to say was, Zach, you forget you, you, have, you have a subject and an addressee. You have a speaker and an addressee. Quit forgetting your addressee. So I'm continuing to learn. And of course, the addressee is not the same as the reader, but it's one of the steps toward consideration of the reader is you are, somebody is listening. And this is a private utterance, but it's delivered in public. And so keep that in mind. The poems that I, sh- I need to spend more time with are those where I'm not concentrating on the fact that I am overheard. And, and so I revise those poems toward that knowledge. But the joy of writing, for me, it, part of the joy is figuring out how to do that. But it's all of it. It's playing with the language. It's, it's the music. It's adding image to abstraction. And then at, at the end, it's when I have that draft that just, that is written selfishly, it's figuring out how to open up the experience toward archetype, for example, or toward form such that uh, the arc of the poem allows for a drama that the, the reader can get into. And so 
the the poem that we're talking about today is very much my experience. It is lived. It's real, but it's written with that reader in mind. Because if I'm writing for myself with only myself in mind, then there's no sense in me sharing it. I write in such a way as to consider that there will be a creep. There will be some creep over hearing this conversation that I'm having. And so I can't just have it with myself. This is a really new idea for me, but I'm really interested in that. Which idea? The the idea of the addressee or the overhearer different than who is different than the reader. Mm-hmm. The idea of making sure you're writing non-selfishly. How do you think maybe this poem would be offered as suddenly a forest might be different if it was still written how you would consider selfishly? Well, it would look like a lot of the other poems in my manuscript where it's all about me, me, I, and it has less physical situatedness, less concrete imagery and more abstractions. Mm-hmm. Uh, poems that don't follow, for example, an image or a conceit through to some form of completion or epiphany or volta. There are so many times that I write one of these drafts from the other night from my, you know, sleep delirium. It was two thirds of a page of me being like, I can't think, what do I do? What do I write? I can't, you know, blah, 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 me, 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 I, 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 I. And then at the end of it, uh, like, as soon as I was giving up on the poem, I, I started saying there are 14 sirens around my home today, uh, which is to say there, are, I don't know how many sirens there are, but too many for a city this small. And then I've moved from that space that's here to the space that's looking out. Um, there's a, I'm thinking of James Schuyler as a poet whose speaker's mind exists on what's observed. And so many of the poems, when we see a boulder in Schuyler, that boulder is the speaker of the poem in, in the way that what's observed, how one observes it is indicative of the speaker. I, I think that my writing will be affected by this conversation with that in mind. Awesome. I'd love to see it. I would love to talk a little bit about your visual art. I did some some poking around on your website. And I love, I love all your paintings. I'm curious to know about how long you've been painting, about how maybe your poetry and painting connect if they're different outlets for different things. Sure, yeah, I've painted longer than I've done anything else. When I was in preschool, I had a, a watercolor table. And when I came back from preschool, I would paint for an hour. And I started painting with oils when I was 11. And so the, that for me is the first sense making, which is colors and images and the physical experience of creating a thing. But I'm a perfectionist and I want to render each image exactly as I see it, which is a huge reason or a huge contributing factor to why I switched to poetry because the painting takes too long. Whereas in a poem, I can say the thing and it exists and I don't have to control how the viewer sees the image. I might spend a lot of time, for instance, in branches, I spend a lot of time making sure that you know exactly what this image looks like. But otherwise, like I can say the viper skulls and you've got the image and when they crunch, you've got the feeling too. So to kind of answer an earlier question along with this one, I found the poems that did what I needed paintings to do and I jumped ship and I keep, I keep painting, but the painting doesn't do what I need most of the time. I think I could ask questions for several more hours. I would just say how grateful I am to both of you, um, to Rick, um, for, you know, for having more confidence in these things than I can. Um, 
to opening up the door so that despite my limitations and, and selfish fears, like other people, creeps and non-creeps alike can access the work. And I am so grateful again to hear not just somebody else hear my experience, but to identify with it, it means the world. And thank you for speaking with me here and for I mean, your beautiful words. Um, and thank you for the space that you play in the world. Thank you. That was Zach Lingy, author of the poem Offered as Suddenly a Forest, speaking with Celeste Levy, a philosophy major from Middlebury's class of 2022. Our previous episode from the NER Out Loud live program featured Madison Middleton reading from the short story Suffering in Motion by McKenna Marsden. You can check that out too on NER's podcast page online. This episode of the NER Out Loud podcast was edited and produced by Alexandra John Burns, a senior feb at Middlebury College. The NER Out Loud podcast is produced by the New England Review in association with Middlebury College. The reading portion of this episode was directed by Dana Yetten and engineered by Mark Christensen. Our original theme music is by Thomas Wentworth. All other music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. From NER Out Loud, I'm Carolyn Keebler. Thank you for listening. <laughs>